pleasure to uh, be with you this morning. And uh, one of the reasons why I uh, waved Matt off and said, no, 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 I'm, I'm still employed, or I'm actually a missionary now, with Barnabas International. I've been doing that for 10 years. And what I do is I visit my former Multnomah students worldwide and just go out and see what they're doing and work with them and offer anything I can offer. And three weeks ago, I was in Ethiopia. And while I was there, we were doing a, a project working with uh, a rich gardener from a nearby church as a missionary, and he's doing firm foundations in Christ. It's a follow-up ministry. He'd been a missionary for um, umpteen years in Nigeria and realized that they didn't do a good job in follow-up. And so he's doing this follow-up ministry. I said, can I go and be a part of it and watch what you're doing? So we're out there in the midst of working with 64. We, we invited 60, an additional four showed up, uh, evangelists and pastors from local churches. And in the, I think it was the second or third day of our five days there, all of a sudden, in the back, it was kind of an open, unfinished building. And coming in on the patio is this lady, she's yelling and flinging her arms around. She's still about 100 feet, 150 feet away from us. I'm going, oh, we've got a demonic moment here. And sure enough, a group of the, the Africans weren't put off by it. They just went right back and started working with her. And we went on with our teaching and training. But it was kind of interesting because it reminded me that uh, in this place, in that part of Ethiopia, we were told beforehand, oh, there's about a thousand witch doctors in this region. There's spiritual warfare going on. It's just commonplace. This is nothing new. Now, by the way, I was up, what's the name, Butler Street? Is that what it is, where the Starbucks was? I came about an hour and a half early, so I was parked in Starbucks and just looking around and saying, what's going on here in this neighborhood? I don't know if it's profoundly spiritual out here. Not in the right way, that is. And, and so that's kind of what we have before us today. Where are we at in a world that has all kinds of spirituality going on, but what kind of spirituality? And as we talk about who God is, it's really applicable, whether we're talking about Ambo, Ethiopia, or this part of the greater Portland region. I live in Camas, just across the river, and I go to Starbucks there, and it's not much different. So there's the challenge that lies before us. Uh, she had a demon. She had exposed herself to spiritual issues. And so here's the question. As that was probably an attempt to disrupt what we were doing, as we were looking at Jesus Christ and who he is as the Son of God, there was a competition going on. And who's greater? Who's highest? Who's in charge? I'll, I'll come back to that story, I hope, at the end. I've got it in my notes here. You wave your hand and say, finish that story, if you would. But we'll pause on that and just put it aside for now. Our focus today is on El Elyon, which is God Most High, the highest of the gods. And it's an interesting title, and it's, uh, it was interesting for me to look at it because for the first time I realized it has to do with competition. The question is always a matter of competition. Whose God is the biggest? When I was a little kid, the big battle was, my dad can be your dad. No, we didn't say it. My dad can be your dad. <laughs> and, you know, dads were always a little embarrassed by this sort of thing, but that's what we kids would do. And this whole idea of who's the biggest, who's the strongest, who's got the fastest car, who's got the, you know, that sort of thing, does that still go on at all? So the question of competition is really, I think, a big piece of who we are. And God knows this. 
And so as we take a look at the question of who is the top God, we recognize that in the Old Testament, where we'll be focusing this morning, there was lots of competition. There were, every region had a God. You had Marduk, Milcom, Molech, Baal, Chemosh, Dagon. Remember the story of Dagon that got knocked over and arms broken off, head broken off? Who was the chief God there? The Ark of the Covenant was put in the same room, and guess who showed himself a little stronger than the other? Dagon never stood a chance. But you can read your Bible and get those kinds of stories. There's Asherah, Astart, just to name a few. But throughout the world, there was still the memory, going clear back to Genesis and the creation, that there is a God who is the Most High God. And that was a name that was apparently generically understood. Uh, among the Greeks, Zeus. <laughs> Actually, he wasn't the Most High because he had to overthrow his father before him, Corgon. And then he became the Most High God. You catch that competition even in Greek mythology. And so everyone had a sense, but there is one God who is greater than all the other gods. We'll just call him, we'll give him a title, the Most High God, the highest of the gods, the, the one who wins every battle, ultimately. And guess what? As we come to the Bible, we discover that term is adopted. Genesis 14 Melchizedek, a guy who is not part of the Mosaic tradition, not part of the biblical tradition, he just appears out of nowhere, and he is the priest of God Most High. And we'll come back and we'll focus on that this morning. But there's another case in, in which the Most High God is mentioned a number of times, uh, and I, oh, I was so tempted to say maybe this should be the focus passage, so I'm going to sneak in a little mini-sermon right now on um, Daniel. Because there we have this dramatic story of the men who are apparently defeated by a greater God because they're captives from Israel, where Yahweh was the great God, but they got defeated and they're shipped off into captivity. And some of the best and brightest are in captivity there in um, Nebuchadnezzar's lair. And there is this vision that is given to Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, of that, that region, and it says, you are going to be the head of gold. And so Daniel is the one who interprets this whole dream, and there's going to be four stages. You're the top and first stage. You're the head of gold. Well, Nebuchadnezzar likes that vision. He goes, man, that is a great vision. He gets so excited about it, he builds a probably about an 18-story statue of himself, covers it with gold leaf, and says, this is me. I am the gold one. Worship me. Well, it seems that Daniel is off scene, but his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, go, um, no, <laughs> we're not going to worship you, Nebuchadnezzar. And, and you'll know the story, how they were a little, little upsetting to Neb, and he says, okay, guys, you're going to cook for this, because if you don't worship me, you don't get it. And of course, they don't worship him, and... They heat the fire really hot. They throw the four guys in, and who shows up? One who looks like the son of a god walking with them, and they come out unscorched. And what's his response to that? Okay, guys, you are worshiping the Most High. Do you get it? Nebuchadnezzar gets it. Oh, there's someone higher than what I thought I was. But then Nebuchadnezzar goes south again, and he 
starts to look at his kingdom. He says, there's no one like me. I am the greatest of the great. And God then confronts him and says, no, no, you are not that greatest of the great. And for seven years, he goes into mental collapse. And then God, who is the most high God, brings him back and restores him. And at that point, Nebuchadnezzar says, I now know who is the most high God. It's not me. Okay? But that's another sermon. Let's just leave that one alone. But it's, it's so attractive. Now, the name most high is used 45 times, the reference in the Bible, Old and New Testament. And so it's a big, repeated theme. And um, we could go, for instance, to the story of Balaam, 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 and uh, in the book of Numbers. And there he is this prophetic figure, and he is a priest or a an oracle on behalf of the Most High, the Most High God. And the people of Moab are a little nervous because the throng of Israel has come out from Egypt and is now moving to Canaan to take it over, the Promised Land, and God is the one leading them. So the king of Moab goes to Balaam and says, Hey, you're the priest of the Most High God. Can you please curse this people for us so we won't lose the battle? And you know what happens? Balaam goes to God, the Most High. That's the title he knows. And the Most High says, oh, no, no, these are my people. I've chosen them, and I have blessed them, and I will bless them. And don't curse them, whatever you do. Okay? So that's another case. So it's just Job. He doesn't mention Most High, but there's a, a whole recognition that goes clear back to the creation that there is the Most High God. So we pick it up here now in Genesis 14. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you may want to track with me. I'm not going to read all of the elements. But here in this scene, we find Abram on a rescue mission. I'm going to mention his name is Abram at this point, and I'll try and stay with that. He doesn't get called Abraham until chapter 17. That's another story. So Abram is on a rescue mission with 318 men from his neighborhood and his business, guys who have been raised up, and he works with them. And, and uh, what is their ambition? Well, it turns out that Abram's nephew, Lot, has been captured by a king named Keter Laomer, Laomer. Keter Laomer, that's his name. Uh, don't ever name your kid that. And so Keter Laomer has been part of a group with three other kings. He is from what is current day uh, uh, Persia, Iran. And he has with him the king of Shinar, which is to say modern day Iraq. So basically, two of the major, major Mesopotamian kingdoms have joined together and it seems like there's another two kings who are probably from turkey so basically all the powers of the north have taken over this major highway that leads to egypt it's called the king's highway that's archaeologists call it that we don't find it in the bible but the king's highway is the place where you block the egyptians from coming up and causing tra trouble farther north and to be able to take that over, they have to conquer local kingdoms. And they came down and conquered Sodom, Gomorrah, Zeboim, Zoar, a whole set of towns that we may be familiar with from other Bible stories. And 
After 12 years, it turns out the king of Sodom, who is apparently the big dog in that neighborhood, says, you know, we've been paying that group of guys up there. We haven't seen anyone except their tax collectors for years. Let's see if we can pull off a rebellion and not pay our taxes. Well, that's not a good thing to do. Not a good thing to do. Then or now. And so what happens is Keter Laomer recruits a whole set of kingdom, um, I just say they're, they're sort of their best troops, to say, we've got to go down and discipline these people. So they come down and take on five kings. It's four kings against five kings. And guess who wins and who loses? Sodom, Gomorrah, those, that group of kings lose big time. And they go rushing off to the hills. And who's captured in the process by Keter Laomer and his crowd, his group of four kings? He's one of the four kings. Lot is captured. The word gets to Abram, who is a couple of chapters earlier, a chapter earlier, said to Lot, look at Lot, let's separate. Though we've been traveling together for years, we now need to separate. So Lot has gone down to Sodom, and he's then captured, and poor old Abram says, oh, I've got to go rescue my wayward nephew. And he has 318 men. Now, who has just defeated five kings? Cheder Leomer and his other three kings. How many people are we talking about in terms of soldiers? We don't know, but I'm guessing we're talking thousands, not hundreds. Probably multiple thousands. Because you don't come down to collect taxes and defeat a bunch of kings with anything less than a convincing army. And... We can presume that's the case. So here's Abram. He's going to go up and rescue. By this time, it's probably a two-day hard march because Cheder uh, Leomer and his group, we find out from the text, chapter 14, have gotten all the way up to Dan. And if you've ever been to Israel, you should go there sometime. Dan is way up in the north. It's just short of getting to Damascus, about a day's hike from Damascus. And that's where we find Abram with his 318 scared-to-death men coming to compete with thousands of trained and nasty soldiers. Okay. Marduk is the god behind Cheder uh, Leomer. Uh, and who knows who the god is behind the Iranian one. And, you know, it, basically it's going to be a competition of gods now, here's the interesting piece about all of this. In chapter 12, 1 through 3, you may be aware of the, what Paul in Galatians talks about the gospel that is presented in the Old Testament. That is the promise of the seed who is going to come, and this one will be the promised fulfillment of God's plan to bring a seed who would be the conquering one who would take over the kingdoms of the earth, the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent, the great competition from Genesis chapter 3.15. And so this promised seed blessing comes, and let me just read it here, 12, uh, chapter 12 of uh, Genesis, and see what this blessing is. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, at that time he was living in Ur of the Chaldees, and your family, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, which happens to be Canaan, Palestine, what is now Israel, 
and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and anyone who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the gospel of the Old Testament. That's the promise that Christ is going to be the one who will bless us with the ultimate blessing of salvation. Go to Galatians 3 on that. So, in his two days of marching, what do you think Abram is thinking? A very simple prayer. Some of you have prayed this yourselves. God, help! 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 Help us, God! Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? Do you think he was thinking anything other than that? 318 against how many thousands? We don't know, but probably many. And what's he going to do to get Lot back? He better have God on his side or he is in trouble. Now, does he think God is the greatest of all gods? Does he think he is the most high God? I presume he's thinking that because in the promise that he received in 12, 1 through 3, God is making a grand promise, which means that somehow Abram has to survive this encounter for that promise to be fulfilled. Remember, the Bible is all about promises. And so here he is going, okay, God. And these 318 guys are going, we hope you know what you're doing. So as this story unfolds, maybe we should just actually read a little bit about it. Um, uh, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318. This is in chapter 14. We're picking it up around verse, verse 14. They went and pursued as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Oh my goodness. And then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsmen Lot and all his possessions and the women and the people. What happened? Well, probably, now this is the historian in me. Here's what we think happened. Probably like Gideon in the book of Judges, at night, if you start yelling and shouting and waving torches around, it looks like you've got an incredible number of people. Each torch probably represents a battalion, if not a brigade, of soldiers. And you've got a um, kind of a group of loosely connected armies from different places, which means you're not used to working together as an army, and you hear this yelling and shouting, and you're from... Iran and the other guys don't speak your language because they're from Iraq and the other guys are from Turkey and they're going, wow, what's going on? I don't know, but there's swords and there's shouting and there's yelling and who knows, we're going to get killed. It's dark, let's get out of here. And they all probably just flee into the dark wilderness and a mere 318 people start chasing them and they win the battle. Do you think God's hand was in this? Maybe. So let's move ahead in the text and see how this unfolds. He routes them, and after the victory, there's a spiritual activity that starts to take place in chapter 15. Well, actually, at the end of 14, after he returns from defeating Keter-Leomer, he goes to the valley of Sheva, this is in verse uh, 14 17, and then in verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And you can imagine they were hungry and thirsty. Now, it says here, and here we find the name that we're looking at, El Elyon, he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram. Here's what he says. It quotes him. Blessed be Abram by El Elyon, or as our Bible puts it, God Most High, 
Who is this El Elyon? He is the possessor. Another way to translate this is creator of heaven and earth. Does that about cover it? He made everything. This is who this El Elyon is, the one in charge. He is the creator of everything. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So who is really responsible for that remarkable victory? 318 against thousands? El Elyon, the God most high. Who was the biggest, toughest God in that neighborhood? El Elyon. And boy, he wanted to show it off not by having a huge mob of soldiers come and defeat a smaller group. Well, that would be, you know, that would just be human force and power. No, 318, the odds were incredibly disproportionate. And El Elyon shows his hand. And so Melchizedek hears the story and he says, well, blessed be El Elyon. And blessed be Abram because somehow Abram is El Elyon's man. Now, we already know that from chapter 12, 1 through 3, don't we? And there's sort of this dawning, I think, in Abram's part, because here's what follows. There's a second king who shows up on the scene, and we pick that up here. Abraham gave him, that is to Melchizedek, a tenth of everything, which is to say, I'm treating you as a priest, as God's representative, and you get a tenth of all the loot and plunder. By the way, here's the rule of going out and conquering an army. You get all the loot and plunder. Okay, that now belongs to Abram. And he says, okay, I'm going to give you 10% of all this stuff. And he says, oh, I, well, I'll just keep reading. He has to pay for the guys that came with him. And the king of Sodom, by the way, we're going to find out, if you keep on reading in Genesis, Sodom is, the king of Sodom is not a particularly godly man, but that's another story. Said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. In other words, he says, Okay, I was the king of all these people. You may have won, but give them to me. Well, Abram doesn't have to do that, but he does it. So here's what Abram says to this rather obnoxious king of Sodom. Um, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, and here he makes a connection that's very important. The word Lord is Yahweh. I have lifted up my hand to Yahweh, El El Yan. You want to know who God is? He is Yahweh, who happens to be the highest of all the gods. He is El Elyon. And that's the point that Abram gets, because it was Yahweh who came and gave him the promise back in chapter 12, 1 through 3. And he says, yes, Yahweh is the one who is being worshipped by Melchizedek. And I worship him too, and I'm going to demonstrate that by giving 10% of all this war booty off and support that ministry and indicate my devotion. He is the possessor of heaven and earth, and I will therefore not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, O king of Sodom, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Whoa, isn't that a turning of... I mean, would you really want... Maybe half, at least, a quarter, keep some of it? What does he say? I'm not, no, not, a, not even a single shoestring. I'm not going to. My life is devoted to God, not to material wealth and to what you can offer me, O king of Sodom. Go back to your neighborhood and take your stuff with you. Well, there's something to be said about Abram here because that's showing a kind of faith that is pretty unique. He says, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshcol and Mamre take their share. 
So we go into chapter 15, and this is sort of what the implications of this whole story are to Abram. And it has great significance and something that I hope we can take on board as we, um, as we consider this passage in a little bit of sort of an applied way. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. So here's God responding to what has just happened. God says, I'm happy to speak to you. We've got some things I want to talk to you about. And so God, as he appears to Abram in a vision, says, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Do you get that? What did he just do? He said to the king of Sodom, I'm not going to take a shoestring from you. I'm going to give 10% to the representative of El Elyon, the great God who is Yahweh, And after I've done that, I give it all back. I give it away. I don't want to keep any of it. And what does God say in response? Well done. I am your reward. I am your shield. I'm the one who protected you in the battle. I'm the one who's going to resource you. You don't have to worry about those things. Well done. You've done well, Abram. Good. Well, anyway, you, you can read for yourself. But, Abram says... Oh, Lord God, once again, he says, Oh, great Yahweh, what will you give me if you're going to reward me? For I continue childless. And then he mentions his, um, the one who is in his will, Eliezer of Damascus. He says, Is, is um, that the one that you're talking about in terms of my future? Behold, you have given me no seed. And by the way, the word offspring or seed, however your translation puts it, goes right back to the seed language of Genesis 3.15. Through your seed, the woman's seed, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. And that, once again, is the promise of the seed in Galatians 3. The seed is singular, Paul says there. And that seed is the one who is the Messiah. And so here's this promise, and Abram is going, "Uh, God, can we have a little chat here? I've declared my dependence on you, and yet you're now saying you're going to take care of me and reward me? Remember that promise back in Genesis chapter 12? He didn't call it Genesis chapter 12, but that promise that you spoke to me about, where you said I'm going to have a whole nation and I'm going to have later on in verse 7 of chapter 12, my seed will take over this land. Oh, God, I'm kind of, I'm, okay, here's a little secret. I'm 69. I'm single. I've never married. I don't have any kids. Well, Abram was about 80 and he didn't have any kids. Okay, now I'm not picturing myself going out and getting married anytime soon, all right? or having any kids or family. But Abram, 15, 20 years older than I am, says, you promised that I was going to have a family. Where is it? Isn't that wrong to talk to God like that? Shouldn't you just always bow and say, whatever you say, whatever you say, I'm just your foot, you know, your foot mat, whatever. He doesn't do that. He says, God, if you promise something, I expect you to fulfill it. Where's that promise? Now, what we will discover if you read through Genesis closely and carefully, 
is that back in Ur of the Chaldees, God said, leave your family, leave your kin, leave everything, go to the land that I will show you. And what we see in the story is Abraham does a half-hearted sort of obedience. He actually travels with his dad, goes to Haran, waits for his dad to die. After his dad dies, he takes one of his kin, Lot, who happens to be a lot of trouble by now, and he's just not quite doing what God tells him to do. In fact, he slides past Canaan, part of the story, and goes down to Egypt and gives Sarah away to Pharaoh. God protects Sarah, Sarai she's called then, and gets her back safely. Let's just say Abram's faith is a little loosey-goosey. He believes things about God, but does he really give himself over to God? Let's just say God is going this direction and... Abram is sort of aimed in wrong directions heart-wise, but he's still traveling in functions of fundamental obedience, but not close obedience. So when we get to this moment of confrontation, he confronts God. God, what about your promise? I don't know if he said it in quite that language, but essentially that's what he's saying here. I continue childless. And uh, he says, verse 3, 15, 3, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he took him outside and said, Look, at the, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your seed, your offspring, be. And he believed Yahweh, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Whew. Something magic occurred there. In fact, we find that Paul picks up on this in Romans 4. He says, now this is what it was where Abram's heart switched gears, and he started to not just see God as a resource, but as the one he trusted it was counted to him as righteous. It's, to say that we're righteous when we're sort of going to church but living in every direction but having a heartfelt devotion to Christ, I hate to tell you, you're a little bit too much like Abram before he came to a full-focused faith and he gave his heart to God, opened his heart and said, I trust you. Now, what was the key in all of this? God had all power. He's the peak of the pyramid when it comes to God's but the question is, did, did, did God like him? Did, did God care for him? And we'll never give our hearts to someone who doesn't love us. There's a rule of thumb. And generally, that's the problem with playing the role of God ourselves because we think we know how best to rule our lives. And God says, no, no, I know better. I've got a plan for you. I've prepared good works that you should walk in them. Trust me. Come and live by faith. Don't trust your own ambitions. And so what happened is he said, see those stars? That's how, that lies ahead of you. You don't have to worry about how it's going to happen. Just, I promise you, I care for you. And I think that's the beauty that we see, that the seed promise, the promise of the offspring it ties into a verse that's good to memorize. If you haven't memorized it, memorize it now. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that's the seed promise, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the love of God. And that's what clicked for Abram. He went, oh, oh. 
The promise is not just about circumstances. The promise is that you care for me. Let me just say in my own experience of conversion, I was raised in a good Baptist church background. My folks met and married at Wheaton College, of all things. My mom sang with the Billy Graham preacher boys. But I wasn't walking. I was doing this while my family was walking with Christ. And then one day I said, God, if you're really there, I've got to hear from you. Please, give me some direction in life, otherwise I'm going to walk away from it as a 16-year-old. And God invited me to start reading the Bible. Try reading your Bible, dummy. So I started reading it at a camp called Clydehurst. They filmed a movie there. A river runs through it a few years later. Beautiful location. And I'm reading my Bible, and it says, no one can serve two masters. You're going to serve the one and love the other, despise the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, money, which, by the way, is a problem a lot of us still struggle with. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let him add these things to you. Don't make these your big ambition in life. And I kept reading, and I got to chapter 10. I said, is this my imagination, or do you really care for me? And the next verse I read, chapter 10, said, look, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. Indeed, every hair in your head is counted. See, I had the kind of moment where it clicked for me. Oh, my God, you care for me. You love me. Oh, my God, how could a 16-year-old twerpy kid like me, how could, I don't know, but you do. And you see, that's what clicked for Abram. El Elyon, the great mighty in charge of Nebuchadnezzar and the whole gang, you name any other God, source, power, whatever those people at Starbucks might be worshiping, the chasing of wealth and status and standing and who knows what other kinds of things. None of that counts because the one who is at the top reaches down to the bottom and collects people who say, not me, but you, let let my life be lived for you. So, Abraham's life was changed. Now, are there any competing gods today? Yeah. How about Ephesians 2, 1 through 3? You used to be dead in your trespasses and sins, following after the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them, you used to walk, following after the lusts of your mind and your flesh, doing whatever he wanted you to do. Even if you went to church, it didn't matter. You weren't listening to El Elyon. You didn't know that he loved you and cared for you. And it's only when that comes about that the change occurs. Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it clear, men serve and worship the creation rather than the creator. And is there a little bit of naturalism going on in the world today? A little bit of Romans 1 stuff going on in the world today? Oh, man. Is there spiritual warfare going on today? Is there a lot of recognition of Mother Nature and not very much of Jesus today? Yeah, there is. A lot of chasing of wealth? Yeah, there is. And who do we have on our side? Ultimately, El Elyon loves us and knows us intimately. Isn't that good news? What about that woman? Should I finish that story, Ethiopia? It was wild. I'm going... She's going, oh, I'm going, oh, I'm not used to this sort of thing. That doesn't usually happen in Portland, not in Camas. No, not so common. And this group of Africans, just three or four of them went back and started working with her, took her by the arms, pulled her aside, exorcised it, threw out the demon. And guess what happened? 
her father, she was, a, she was a gal with some children. She had a husband and some children. Her father was outside the gate of the compound, and he all of a sudden started going wild, and whatever happened, we probably the best guess is the demonic force went over and started to take over him, and he starts going crazy. And so they just set her down and went over and dealt with him. They know how to do this in Africa. This is nothing new to them. They pray over him. The demon comes out, and guess what happens? The next morning we've got a report. The whole family came and received Jesus Christ that night. Who is greater? The one who is trying to disrupt our ministry? Or El Elyon Yahweh? Oh, by the way, what does it say in, uh, when we get to the New Testament, just to give at least one New Testament reference? In um, Luke chapter uh, 1, I think it's verse 36, 37, somewhere there, 32, there is the uh, Gabriel coming and speaking to Mary and says, oh, by the way, you are going to bear the Son of the Most High. Who is that? Jesus. El Elyon's son. Who is it that we get to come to when we're going, help, help, help? The Son of God, who is El Elyon. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, wonderful reality of who you are and how you reveal yourself to us. Thank you for the security it offers us, and thank you most of all for the love it represents. You have been so generous and so gracious to us and so patient with us as we wander off and don't quite get it. But I do pray that our hearts, if we haven't already, will respond to the great promise that you have so loved the world that you gave us your son, the son of El Elyon. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.